And so it's no longer build versus buy. It's really become build versus die as this Darwinian evolution is occurring in every industry. And therefore, the role of software developers and the importance of unlocking that talent has never been more important. So, Jeff, great to have you on the NFX podcast. Happy New Year to you. Thank you, Pete. It's great to be here and Happy New Year to you and to all the listeners. I hope that folks are waking up for 2021 and believing that it's going to be uphill from where 2020 was. That's for sure. We certainly hope so. So kind of rewinding. So we met, gosh, more than a decade ago, I think. So when I was running Trulia, you were running you know, and still are running Twilio. We were at Trulia one of the very early customers of Twilio and was just such an important tool for us in the early stage, trying to connect consumers and real estate agents with a web platform in this offline, online world. So it's amazing kind of what you've achieved since those really early days. Maybe just to kind of, let's take 2020 as a context. It's been a crazy, crazy year. You said on Mad Money that you think coronavirus has sped up digital transformation by as much as six years. Like, Tell me what you saw in 2020 for your business. Well, if you think about what Twilio does, right, we've really always offered three things to companies, and it turns out they've been particularly relevant for the era of a pandemic. You know, Twilio offers, first of all, digital engagement. So the ability to use all these digital channels like voice, messaging, chat, video, email to engage with with customers and, you know, really any stakeholder and to do so with a lot of flexibility. The second thing that we offer is digital agility, right? The idea that, you know, with software, you can build anything and you can build anything relatively quickly. And APIs are key enablers of that kind of agility. And the third thing is cloud scale, right? The idea that when you build something, you're not thinking about racking up servers or doing capacity planning. You just build something, you push it out to the cloud and it works everywhere. And so those three things digital engagement, software agility, and cloud scale is what Twilio's offered. And it turns out the world has needed those things really more than ever in the era of a pandemic because we had to really rewire the world in so many ways in such a short period of time. And new challenges arose that needed people building solutions to them. ASAP was really the story of the builders of 2020. And you know, you think about some of these industries that were really reinvented on the fly. You know, I think about healthcare. And as a, you know, fortuitous coincidence, Twilio announced uh, HIPAA support for healthcare workloads in February of last year. And that's something we had been working on for, you know, like 18 months. And we happened to announce it just in time for the healthcare world to embrace telemedicine like never before. And so we saw so many companies, whether they were technology providers or medical systems themselves, adopting telehealth. And early in COVID, a huge percentage of doctor visits turned into telemedicine visits. And I think we saw a massive acceleration. And telemedicine is not new. There had been companies building telemedicine. There had been medical systems experimenting with telemedicine. But you know, a relatively small percent of doctor's visits were done over video, while suddenly it was like half or more visits became video visits. And that has accelerated in one direction, the adoption of telemedicine now in the world. And you think about other categories like e-commerce saw a massive acceleration of adoption and not just obviously, you know, Amazon, but every company that offers e-commerce saw a huge acceleration. I remember talking to the CIO of one of the major big box retailers mid-year and he said that they saw a five-year acceleration of their e-commerce traction, of their e-commerce adoption in one quarter. And, you know, so many companies were dealing with then the challenges of great, how do we scale it up and what are all the other 
problems that then arise. You know, so that executive was talking about how contact center for e-commerce was completely overwhelmed with customers asking about orders and returns and all that kind of stuff. All the things you typically would play out over the course of multiple years of slowly building that infrastructure and staffing those teams played out over the course of a quarter. And so companies had to catch up and build. And so that's really the story of 2020. When I look at it, companies had these digital transformation plans and whole industries did, you know, like telemedicine and e-commerce and these curbside pickup workflows and all these things. And they just got accelerated. And most of these workflows are not special one-off things that we did for COVID. These are the natural course of the digital transformation of nearly every industry that just got accelerated out of necessity as we had to remove all face-to-face interactions in society and make these industries work as completely digital businesses. And so when I talk to a wide variety of leaders, they basically say, look, this gave more prominence to these projects. It accelerated budgets. It accelerated executive attention on these projects that would have potentially taken years, got done in quarters or sometimes even weeks. And that's really amazing. It's totally amazing. It's amazing how this infrastructure that you built up over time becomes this essential piece of infrastructure for communication, for work, for everything. It's remarkable. And, and so maybe just take a step back into 2008 when you're first starting Twilio. You know, the vision has become a kind of a huge part of a society and the reality today. But back in 2008, maybe just, just thinking through where you were back then and recognizing that our audience is a lot of early stage founders, like what was the starting point? How did you think about the business back then? And what was the original idea? I think that when you look at companies with sort of a big world-changing vision or mission, those are usually retroactively put in place, to be honest. That's like the secret, like the dirty secret of like every startup ever. There's a certain selection for companies because I think it is probably the startups that have this giant world-changing vision on day one probably get so blinded by this, we have to change the world and we have a vision and blah, 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 that they actually miss the opportunity right in front of their noses. And so I think probably the best startups are those that aren't founded with this, you know, idea of this giant mission. They're founded with a relatively simple thing is I know a customer segment that has a problem and I'm going to go solve it. And if you do that really well in the early days of a startup, you kind of earn the ability to say, okay, we did that. We're making money and we're growing. What's next? How do we decide how to take our early success and turn it into future success? And that's when you start thinking about, okay, so what is the real like North Star of our company? And like when we have to pick the next thing we're going to do, should it be uh, over to the left or should it be over to the right? Well, we need some sort of guiding vision. Now we're going to install a framework to help us make those decisions. And so that was how it was at Twilio, which was what we knew was I'm a developer. I've been a software developer. I learned to code in the 90s and I'd started three companies before Twilio. And I was one of the first product managers at Amazon Web Services. And when I left Amazon, I knew I wanted to build my next company around something that I was passionate about, something that I get really excited about. And I thought back to you know my time as a developer and as a company builder. And I realized that at every company I had started prior to Twilio, there were really two things in common, despite the fact that they were very different businesses. But the common intersection of all the different businesses I had started was, number one, at every one of those companies, we were using the power of software to really build a great customer experience, a differentiated product, and iteratively understand our customers and build better and better and better solutions using software. And to me, that's the superpower of software, your ability to listen to a customer and quickly iterate your way towards a better and better customer experience or product or solution for that customer. 
The second common thread though, that I had at every one of those companies was in the course of building those companies or those experiences or those products, we had needed communication because we had needed to reach out to customers or let them reach out to us for a wide variety of things. You know, sometimes it was in our marketing, sometimes it was during our sales process, sometimes it was customer support, sometimes it was while they were using our product. There were all these places where we'd say, oh, wouldn't it be neat if a customer could reach out to us and we could get them this answer? Or wouldn't it be neat if we could proactively notify them of this or that? And every time we'd have these ideas, we said, yeah, that'd be really neat, but I'm a software developer. What I don't know the first thing about communications. You know, that's like copper wires and satellites in space. And like, so you call these, the companies who seem like they didn't know this wrong. You call, you know, the you know, the hardware companies or the carriers and you'd say, hey, you know, we have this idea, we're trying to build it. And you explain it to them. And, you know, the salesperson would say, yeah, we're happy to help you with that. You know, first step is you're going to run copper wire from the carrier to your data center. And then step two, you're going to buy a bunch of hardware and rack it up. Then step three, you're going to buy a software stack to plop it on top of that telco hardware. And step four, you're going to bring in a whole professional services army to come bang the whole solution into shape. We think we can do that for you, but it'll take, you know, two to three years and two to three million dollars. You know, sign here, we'll get started. And every time I had this experience, I said, wait, wait, hold on a second. Like we're a startup spending millions of dollars on this one feature idea. We can't really do that. More important than that, because, you know, maybe there are some companies, some you know big enterprises, maybe they could sign that check very easily. The more interesting part of that answer was years. It would take years to build this, this V1 of this idea we have and customers would never get to play with it until we had built the whole thing and spent millions of dollars in years. And then once customers told us all the things wrong with it, then we have to embark on the next version, which is again, would be millions of dollars in years spent. This is the complete opposite of that software ethos. Everything we do in software, we can measure in like weeks. And that's what sprints, that's what agile is all about. You know, it felt like everything in the world of communications was like the old waterfall model, which kind of makes sense. Like it's an industry where they've been accustomed to launching satellites and putting up towers and buying spectrum for billions of dollars and you know laying down millions of miles of copper wire all around the planet you're like yeah those are hard those are slow those are high stakes things you know so i understand that but how we get value out of communications isn't about all that anymore it's really about the software now and so started Toyo to solve a relatively simple problem of how do we bring communications into the realm of software and enable every software developer in the world who has an idea like we had always had to be able to build it quickly and easily. And that was where we started. And having done that, and like the key thing though, is if I was the only developer in the world who would have that problem, then we probably wouldn't have built a meaningful business. And so I did a lot of research before we started Twilio of talking to other developers and basically describing the solution we have in mind and asking, would you have a use for it? And every time I talked to a developer, they would say, they'd kind of scratch their head for a minute. They'd say, oh. And then eventually they'd say, well, wait a minute. I have a question, that idea that you talked about, the, the telephone API, could I? And they'd explain some use case they had recently. Could I notify my customers when a package ships from my e-commerce website so that they don't keep calling customer support to ask where the package is? And I would say, yes, yes, that'd be really easy. And they'd say, oh yeah, great. Well, let me try it when you build it. And after having that conversation enough times, realized that I was not alone in wanting of seeing these use cases and needing a way to solve it. And that's what gave us the conviction to start the company. And it turns out now we've got over 10 million developers in our ecosystem and over 200,000 businesses who are customers of Twilio. And so the key to me was one, solve a customer problem. And two, make sure that the customer problem you're solving has legs to be big enough to solve many customers' problems so that ultimately it's a big opportunity worthy of your time and energy. Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of original vision is truly borne out. And I think there was a simple problem to solve. I think a lot of people didn't realize how big an opportunity was. And the timing, obviously, with the rise of the smartphone was where you kind of have this sort of telephony meets software environment was obviously hugely impactful. Obviously, during that time in kind of 2008, we went through a recession back then. And now, you know, we've got this sort of crazy, it doesn't necessarily feel like a recession in the sort of like in the same way, but clearly there's a sort of economic change going on. How have 
you personally navigated this change with impact of coronavirus and remote work? And how have you as a founder CEO evolved your leadership to successfully navigate in these crazy times? I think in a time like this, where there's so much pain, suffering, or at the very best discomfort that everybody is facing, the way to lead is with empathy. And, you know, I think about it, you know, I talked very early on in COVID, obviously we closed all our offices the first week in March. Everybody started working from home. Now, luckily, our business is one with a lot of knowledge workers, so we're able to do that relatively successfully. But, you know, talking to a lot of employees, realizing how everybody is struggling with something. You know, nobody is immune to this, right? You think about, you know, people with kids, they were struggling with homeschooling their kids. People who were single and lived alone, they're struggling with loneliness. People with roommates are struggling with the fact that they did not pick their roommates because they wanted to spend 24 hours a day with them. <laughs> and so many of them were, you know, very sick of their roommates very quickly. It's like everybody, introverts, you know, are oftentimes in a home with no escape to be alone. And extroverts, they were trapped in their home with no one to talk to. Like everybody was struggling with something. And so as a leader, starting with empathy and starting with just hearing where people are at and how best you can help people through the very real and very personal struggles that they're having, while also helping them to be productive people in the company to achieve the company's goals. And you can't strike that balance if you don't have empathy and don't know where people are. And I think encouraging, not just like you know myself, but encouraging all the managers inside of the company to approach their job in that way was really important. And we kept emphasizing to manage, like you know, one of the things that I said early on in COVID, which I think turned out to be true, is like I find oftentimes you start a call in normal times. You know, you call a friend, a family member, a coworker, and say, "Hey, how's it going? How you doing?" And in COVID, I would start calls like that. How you doing? And then realize that like that, you know, throwaway question that often we start our calls with actually took on real meaning. And you'd follow it up with, oh, how are you really doing? And actually get to a real conversation with folks about how they're doing, what they're struggling with, how they're feeling good, are they feeling bad? And encouraging every leader in your company to really approach their conversations that way and to moderate the work to meet people where they're at. Some days, you know, I'm feeling down and you can take up some slack. Other days you're feeling down and I can take up the slack. And that is how we together are able to actually uh, push the company through and how we're better together. Yeah, kudos to you. Yeah, we'll get onto it in a bit, but you've been so thoughtful about company building and culture building and it sort of really shines through. And I think that the investment that you make early on when times are good pays off dividends when times are challenging. So kudos to you. Maybe switching gears to a little bit uh, the early stages of reaching developers and scaling. Like developers were the ones that were really spreading the word for your product. How did you start that? And was that very much an intentional approach of this? sort of bottoms up developer strategy or something else? We well, you know it's interesting. Part of our strategy here was driven by two things. One, I had a conversation with an early venture capitalist who I had known from prior endeavors and I pitched him on the idea. He was like my safe pitch because I knew him really well and for feedback. And his feedback was, wow, you're going to need a lot of salespeople for this thing. And I said, oh, no, 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 not at all. Developers, are just, they're going to buy it. We're not going to need sales. It's going to be amazing. He literally laughed me out of his office. He said, yeah, yeah, right. But I did start the company with a very much a bottom-up, like developer-focused mindset. Now, of course, we have since come to add a lot of salespeople. And so the venture capitalist was right. But initially, we did focus a lot of our energies on just how do we get the word spread? How do we get Twilio into the tool belt of every developer in the world? That's the goal. Because if they're anything like me, once it's in the tool belt, they will have all these opportunities to use it because the business problems that arise that developers are tasked with so often need communications that if we're there in the tool belt, the moment that problem arises, they will use Twilio. And that has proven out to be true. And so we just started by treating developers like customers. And it's like, sounds really simple, 
but there's a lot to it. Most companies who claim to serve developers actually don't see developers as customers. They see them as a strategy. They see them as like, you know, you think about like the big platforms that add a developer element to what they do. It's about how do developers make our platform better? And so developers aren't customers. They're like an audience that you try to win over in order to actually add more value to the company. And if it works great, if it doesn't, then you change strategies. And that's why a lot of the platforms so frequently say, hey, you know what? I know we put out that API last year, but it's not working out. We're going to pull it back. And developers mistrust those things because they are not the customer. They are part of a strategy. And so we always said developers are the customer and you treat them like a customer and you treat them as the source of your revenue and the source of your success as opposed to a strategy. And so part of what that is, like I actually took a lot of inspiration. One of the companies I started before Twilio was a extreme sporting goods retail business, actually bricks and mortar retail business in Los Angeles, a store called Nine Star. And we were doing skateboarding, snowboarding, surfing, BMX, biking, all this kind of X game type sports. Yeah, it was totally random. I don't do any of those sports. It's a long story. But one of the things that always struck is super interesting about that is that those are like lifestyle sports. Those are like people who skateboard think like they kind of wrap their life in the ethos of that sport. They wear the clothing. They visit the stores a lot because they love hanging out with other people who do that sport. They are always interested in the new gear. They watch the sports on TV. They've got their heroes. Like it's a lifestyle. And I think software developers are actually kind of like that. Not all of them, but a lot of them where they actually like think about, they go to work, they write code, they come home, they got their side projects, they write code. They love reading things like Hacker News just to learn new tips, new tricks, and always get better out of this sense of curiosity and enjoyment of this field that is both a profession, but also a hobby. And so we treated it like that. You know, we did a lot of things, I think, to help encourage that. We sponsored a lot of hackathons. We ran hackathons. We, you know, gave out a lot of t-shirts. At one point, I predicted that we would give out, I don't remember the exact prediction, actually. It was actually BlackBerry. It was like when the iPhone was launched and you could sort of see the writing on the wall for BlackBerry. I said, prediction in five years, Twilio will ship more t-shirts than BlackBerry ships phones. That may have been true, but track jackets are, were a big part and they still are a big part of our culture. And the idea was you know, to create this sense of pride is like, I'm a builder and I want to connect with other builders and I've got my tools and I've got companies who really understand that and help me unlock the best. Like I'm very inspired by Nike as a brand and as a company. Like the idea that they took the idea of unlocking the athlete in every person is their mission, give or take. It's not exactly the wording, but that's how I interpret it. And I think that idea of how do you let something come out of people that is inside them and a part of their life and a part of who they aspire to be. And I think that every company in many ways wants to be builders and wants to be builders of technology and wants to be able to compete with the likes of Google and Amazon and Uber and Facebook and like be an amazing technology company. And it's hard. But it's aspirational. And I think part of how we thought about it, both at the individual level as well as at the company level, is like, we're going to help you do that. We're going to help you be great at this thing that is aspirational for you. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, the developer conference, the events, I mean, the word was out and it was clearly a, those sort of tactics were highly effective. As you think about the strategy, you know, I know from Trulia's perspective, we implemented Twilio during a hackathon and it, you know, suddenly it was implemented and then it was just like irreplaceable. I'm sure that kind of embedding defensibility has been hugely valuable. But you know, as you think about network effects and obviously something we at NFX think a lot about, like what do you think about the broader platform opportunity here? I know the company has been very active in MA over the last couple of years. Like, how do you think about broader defensibility and the network effects you're building at scale today? I think that a lot of people hang a lot of their hopes on like network effects and like that's what will make us succeed. I'm a little less of a believer that there's like the silver bullet, if you will, of success. And a lot of people look at 
the success stories of network effects, you know, like Facebook and believe that if they can only build that, then, you know, that's the key to their longevity or their success. I don't totally buy into that, to be honest. I think that that is one tool in the toolkit of trying to make it that the more people you serve, the better off all of your customers are. But that's certainly not the only tool in the toolkit. And I think a lot of people put too much into that one tool because you look at some of the successes of, say, you know, a Facebook and all that kind of stuff. I just think you've got to have a multi-pronged approach to add more value to your customers every day. And it's sort of as simple as that. And so network effects are often thought of as, how do I create a stronger company? What's my moat? Really, I'd be asking the question, how do I add more value to my customers? And as I grow, is there a way that the rest of my customer base or the rest of my, or whatever I'm building, makes my solution better for all of my customers? There's a lot of ways to do that. You know, one way is to build a comprehensive product that moves quickly. So as I think about Twilio, we very quickly went from a one product company to a multi-product company. That bucks the conventional wisdom in a lot of ways. A lot of conventional wisdom was like, you know, do one thing, do it well, you know, find a niche, get rich. Like there's a lot of fancy sayings for it, but I'm a believer that in the world of software, you have to try a lot of things because it's relatively inexpensive to try things. And so we very quickly, you know, Twilio Voice was our first product and we pretty quickly, only uh, about 18 months into the life of the company, announced our second product, which was Twilio SMS. And it turns out that like SMS is probably a, a bigger product than voice. And today it certainly is because the number of use cases for it were really exploding and were really unexplored because SMS had been a really pretty esoteric and difficult to use technology up until Twilio. And so we unlocked a lot of innovation around what is possible with messaging. And so I think that's a way. And then we continue to invest and we've got now, you know, video, chat, email, as well as, you know, now data infrastructure and a lot of facets to our platform. And the idea is once you get to know Twilio, there are so many ways you can adopt us and use us. We just solve a bigger and bigger set of the challenges that a developer has. But for a company, what they're looking for is more comprehensive solutions. And that's where having one platform that shares all of these different attributes, instead of having to go cobble together lots of different things, really helps a company to pick a vendor that they trust, that they want to work with, and allow that company to go solve more and more challenges for them. And I think that ultimately the key to success, especially in B2B, is trust. You know, trust is the number one thing that you sell. And, you know, you think about what the cloud is. The cloud is saying to your customer, hey, you know, this part of your business, whether it's your infrastructure, whether it's some app, whatever it is, trust that we are going to execute on this idea better than you can do it internally. Trust that we are going to keep building, that we're going to keep it reliable and secure, and we're going to add features and functionality, and we're going to do it better than you can do it yourself. That is essentially asking for your customer's trust. And so fulfilling on that trust every day, that's ultimately how you build your business, how you retain your customers. And I like to think that we earn our customers' business every day. So there's no idea of like, we don't think at Twilio, we don't think about lock-in and we don't think about you know any of those things. All we do is think about how do we earn our customers' business every day with a combination of trust and execution. That's how we do it. And that's how we stay ahead of anybody else. That is scalable to like every business, if you will. You've done, I mean, it's such a terrific job. I think just from a kind of network effects perspective, we think about this very broadly. So I think exactly what you just said, which is like, as you add more users, how does the service become more valuable for every other user is exactly what you've done. Exactly the same process we think about network effects. And then also defensibility. Clearly, you know, you've built a very enduring company, which is, and defensibility is really coming from embedding, from scale, from network effects, and also brand, which is really a proxy for trust. So kudos to you. And it does seem, you know, I think a lot of, you may have seen this in your journey, but early on investors, I think might've perceived what you're doing as plumbing 
for services that could be easily ripped out or doesn't provide scale benefits or isn't trusted. And I think they probably misunderstood how big the market was. And that's been borne out clearly that this is an enormous market and this is not a commodity process or commodity product in any way. You know, it's interesting. There's a good book I've recently discovered called Seven Powers. Have you heard of it? I've not heard of it, no. I'll make a book recommendation here. Seven Powers by Hamilton Helmer. And he talks about essentially, you know, what is power? Power is your ability building your company to achieve essentially long periods of outsized returns for your shareholders. And then he says there's basically seven fundamental powers that enable you to do that. And you know, most businesses don't have all of them, but thinking about these in terms of how you are building power in your business, i.e., the ability to have outsized returns is important. And he's got several ones, counter positioning, scale economies. And that's kind of what network effects often goes to switching costs or network economies. Actually, it's probably more of the network effects one, process power, branding, and cornered resources. And so I would give that as an interesting book recommendation to any listener who's interested in kind of thinking about, you know, I want to serve customers, but I also want to make sure that I don't give all the value to my customers because if I'm starting a company, I need to create value for myself and my shareholders too, which is absolutely fair. And I think there's a pretty interesting framework that I've recently become a fan of. Course. Okay. Checking it out. Okay. Book that's on the uh, Amazon order list. So talking of books, you are releasing a new book called Ask Your Developer. And so what's the kind of genesis for this? You mentioned in the prologue that there's a, and I've seen it so many times, the Ask Your Developer billboard, and this is a kind of quick code for developers. Tell us a story about that. Well, you know, we, it was about 2014, I think. We had bought a billboard and we needed to decide what to go on it. And we'd hired a firm, like, you know, like a communications firm or whatever. And they, you know, they did a lot of work. They talked to a lot of, you know, of our employees. They talked to customers and, you know, they basically pitched us and like, here's the, you know, here's the best idea. It's like, we're going to, you know, great companies use Twilio and like put a logo. And I'm like, really? Like we just spent six months to figure that one out. And uh, so we're stuck with, we got a billboard. It's going up on Monday and we need the creative. What are we going to put on it? And something that had been in the back of my head for a long time, like one of the things I just would think about in the shower or whatever was the whole idea of like, you know, those commercials for drugs, where they say, ask your doctor if Fervabin is right for you, you know? And I always just, for some reason, my brain just always went to ask your developers if Twilio is right for you. And so I were in this meeting and we literally just had to like, we could not end the meeting without deciding what went on the billboard because it was like going up on Monday and I just blurted it out. How about ask your developer? And everyone's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you know, it's just sort of like developers know about Twilio and, you know, the executives should be listening to their developers. And, you know, that's one of the mega trends that's really going on is developers are able to adopt services and tools very quickly, very inexpensively, you know, things like Stripe or Amazon Web Services or anything else that are allowing them to innovate faster and drive the businesses forward. And so really, I think that executives should be, you know, listening to developers, both in terms of like, you know, it's sort of like this wink and nod to the developers of the world, like, hey, you know, you know about Twilio, good for you. But also this bigger message around developers should be thought of as as leaders inside of companies who actually know a lot about what companies need to do to innovate and to win in this world and, and businesses should consult them. And so we did the billboard and, you know, it's sort of interesting because you go back and forth, you know, some people are like, what an idiotic billboard. It doesn't tell me what you do. Obviously we have our tagline, you know, tagline on it that says, you know, Twilio, you know, communications platform, but in some ways it is so simple that it's easy to consume, but has sort of profound implications. And so like over the years thought a lot about this notion of asking your developer, like, what does it really mean? You know, it's sort of like a fun tag and it's a fun billboard because it's a wink and a nod, but 
it also, I've thought a lot about the implications of it. And over the years, you know, Twilio has 10 million developers in our ecosystem and 200,000 customers. And I've had this conversation with so many different customers through the years asking me, typically they're business executives saying, you know, Jeff, I have a question. Like we're struggling to figure out like, how do we get really good at building software? How do we hire great developers? How do we organize the team? Uh, how do we make sure we retain those developers? Because, you know, hey, we're not like a Google or a Facebook or someone who's known for being a great engineering culture. And so I've shared my tips over the years and, you know, I thought about it some more and, and I'm in a somewhat of a unique position being that, A, I'm a software developer myself, but now I'm also the CEO of a public company. And so, and I see the division between that developer mindset and the business mindset because I live with one foot in both of those worlds, generally speaking. And so I took my unique vantage point and wrote down in this book, essentially, how do we create a shared parlance, a set of understanding between what business executives are trying to accomplish and what developers and technical talent, what they want to accomplish and how they go about doing their job. Because there's so many things about how developers do what they do that I think are not really fully understood by especially business executives in the world. And so by starting to create the shared understanding, I think it can help businesses to execute better in the digital realm. You know, I kind of start the book by drawing the comparison to you know, look, it used to be that IT was something you outsourced, that, you know, this stuff like back in the era of they need to manage the laptops or, uh, you know, deploy the ERP system. You're like, yeah, you know, that's something that's outsourced. It's not a source of competitive advantage. In fact, it's a cost center. We just need to be as cost effective as possible. It made sense. You would outsource all that stuff. But about 15 years ago, you know, what started to happen with the web and now with mobile is the interface that most companies have with their customers is suddenly a digital interface. Yeah, it used to be your bank, you know, you thought your bank was a good bank if you know you walked in the branch and it was you know well kept, it was designed nice, it was clean, the teller was friendly and they gave your kid a lollipop. Now you like your bank if they have a fast mobile app that you know adds new features and functionality that helps you in your daily life, if they're listening to you and they're building new things and the mobile app is easy to use and always getting updated, right? That's what makes your bank seem like a good bank to you because your bank is now an app. It's no longer a branch. And in that world, every company needs to to be able to listen to customers and build. That's how you differentiate in the eyes of your customer. You know, you can't just buy a solution off the shelf, the same solution that like every other one of your competitors has and assume that you're going to be differentiated. Like, no, you have to build, you have to listen to customers. And so it's no longer build versus buy. It's really become build versus die as this Darwinian evolution is occurring in every industry. And therefore the role of software developers and the importance of unlocking that talent has never been more important. Yeah, that's so clear today. I mean, you see it from the kind of most famous and most successful people that they're mostly software engineers or have spent time being software engineers today, the most successful people. I guess, do you see that? Is that message still not resonating today? Or is it just that people don't have the capabilities to execute in that way to turn their business into digital businesses just because they don't have the skill set? Well, I think that a lot of companies have realized that as you know, the years have gone on and people have seen disruption in industry after industry. I think people realize that it is hard to actually create a world-class engineering culture. It's hard to hire developers and make them successful. And so that's really why I wrote the book is to try to share some of the things. Like I find that, you know, software development is this weird, esoteric and complex thing. And it's relatively new. Like we've only been doing it for what, like 30, 40 years, but in the modern, like agile sense, we've only been doing it for 20 years. So it's a new addition to the economy and to the world and a lot of mystery around it. And, you know, software developers don't always help this. You know, these mysterious questions that we don't have great answers to that can really infuriate, I think, 
you know, business leaders and myself included, like I've been in these conversations, been like, oh, this is infuriating. And, you know, questions like, you know, executive says, you know, we got our big marketing, we got our big conference, we need to ship the thing. And the technical leaders will say, well, I can tell you when we're going to ship it, but I can't tell you what we're going to ship. Or I can tell you what we're going to ship, but I can't tell you when we're going to ship it. And you're like, ah, I want to pull my hair out because it's such an infuriating answer. But it, it is largely true that you know, there's unknowns and the way you account for unknowns in software engineering is by relaxing either features or timeframes. And so there's a trade-off and any engineering leader who, t- by the way, there's a third one too, quality. So any engineering leader who will tell you, yep, I promise you all these features on this date, guess what they're giving up? Quality. And so, and there's often the unspoken thing that's getting relaxed there. And so it's like, what I'm trying to do is explain to executives, like, here's how software engineering works so that you can have a mature and realistic conversation with your teams instead of, you know, the sort of like pound the table, like I demand it and like getting a crappy product. That also wasn't something you wanted, but if you don't articulate it, then that's probably what you're going to get if you demand features on a date. Another one I think is interesting is like, you know, as business executives, you know, one of the main tools that we have, if not the main tool is budget, right? That's how we kind of can make decisions and actually, you know, we can give budget or not give budget to various initiatives or teams. And so oftentimes, you know, an executive might hear, oh, this project is running late and their you know, default reaction is to say, well, great, let's just, let's throw more money at it and hire more people. Let's get it back on track. It's counterintuitive, but that actually will typically make the project even later. And so I go into explaining why, why is it that you can't just throw money at a late project and expect it to catch up when in fact you'll probably actually do more harm than good. And so setting out to create this common parlance between like, how does great development work? And what are some things you need to invest in? You need to invest in engineering infrastructure to make them successful. And I draw a lot of parallels to sales actually, because I think a lot of executives had to learn how sales works and they know what their great salespeople are capable of and they can draw the line between what really good sales looks like and how it impacts the business. And so I draw a lot of parallels to things that we've learned about how sales processes work and try to map it to like how development processes work and how engineering culture and engineering capabilities will help you build a great business, but you need to be able to speak the same parlance. Like if you just yell at a salesperson, you know, why didn't you close the deal yet? It's like, well, understanding how a sales cycle works is really the key to understanding you know, if your sales process is healthy or not, but just kind of yelling at them about closing the deal isn't really going to get it done. The same thing goes in engineering. You wrote in the book, don't treat developers like digital factory workers. They're the new creative workforce. I guess two questions. So what was that something that you kind of experienced personally as your time as a developer? And then also, you know, as someone who's spent some time coding as well, there's something, I manage a lot of engineers, there's something quite special about the developer mindset, which is quite different from the sales mindset or the finance mindset. What do you see as the superpowers of the developer mindset? And then also what are perhaps some of the challenges with that mindset? Well, the interesting thing is that code is a creative endeavor. And what you do when you write code is you do a lot of creative problem solving. And, you know, that involves obviously figuring out how best to solve the problem with code, writing that code, debugging that code. I mean, these are all creative problem solving endeavors. Yet a lot of businesses assume that the only type of creative problem solving developers are capable of is turning a specification document into a piece of code. And so they like literally a lot of businesses are constructed in a way where it's like, well, we feed in, you know, product requirements documents on one end and, you know, some Mountain Dew and the other end we get some code. And I think that is totally discounting the capabilities that so many developers have as creative problem solvers. So my biggest thing that I advocate is don't share solutions with developers, share problems. And what you do is unlock the full creative problem solving ability of those developers, right? And so what I mean by that is a lot of businesses create walls between, okay, these are the customer facing people. And let's say you've got product managers and their job is to write a specifications document for what we need to build and to throw it over the wall to the engineers. 
And then the engineer's job is to write software that matches that specifications document. And so what you're doing is you're sharing a solution, build this thing. I want to form with the field that says name and 40 characters long, and I want you to go build that. And if a developer has no idea why they you need that form and doesn't know anything about the customer, the problem that's getting solved, well, they'll dutifully build you your form, even if there could be much better ways of solving that problem. But if you share with the development team and with the developers, here's why we need to build this thing. We're trying to reduce the friction in our signup form and make it so a customer can get started in 30 seconds instead of half an hour, which it currently takes. Now you've got developers say, wow, there's a lot of good ways to solve that problem. And by the way, you know, whatever we think of as our first step, you know, there may be a hundred steps after that that can make it better and better and better. If you take the problem and put it in front of the team, that enables them to use their full brain and come up with things that connect both their understanding of the technology, the understanding of the architecture of what you have and find the, you know, least path, highest impact way of getting to a solution to that problem that may not be available to them if they either A, don't know what the problem you're trying to solve is because they just were handed a spec or B, the spec doesn't give them the leeway to actually come up with a better way to solve that problem. And so that's where sharing problems instead of solutions really accelerates your development and gets the most out of your talent. And the other thing that it does is it treats developers like full human beings with full set of capabilities. And the best developers want to work at companies where they use their full brain. And so if you hire developers and don't allow them to do that, I suspect that many developers won't stay in those jobs for very long because they don't feel like they're getting fulfilled by the work. I couldn't agree more. You're under pressure as a CEO to be the person with all the ideas and the solutions, and that's complete disaster. I know personally when you open it up and you share the problem, not the solution, then the creative, you get the full creative force of the organization and it unlocks remarkable ideas and it's a necessary ingredient for a startup success. Switching to kind of culture and communication, I remember hearing you speak at a conference about draw the owl and it was a part of you've been very thoughtful this was many years ago very thoughtful about culture building can you explain just firstly about how you think about the internal culture at twilio and then kind of perhaps into the book what are the cultural changes that businesses need to make to fully other than sharing the problem not solution to really unlock the full power of this digital transformation so I think about culture, you know, people often use the phrases culture and values interchangeably. And here's how I think about it. And I actually add a third one to it, the operating system. The culture of a company is what you feel when you come to work every day. You interact with your coworkers, you interact with customers, and you go about doing your job. How do you feel about that? That's really the culture of the company at work. That's a very amorphous thing, right? How do you feel? And so what leaders need to do is to put words to that feeling. And I think of those words as handles that let you guide it, that let you steer it, that let you maintain it. Those words, those are values. That's taking a feeling that you have and you want people to have and putting words to it so you can ensure its proper development. Because if you don't have handles on the culture, then it can go off in all sorts of directions. Because you think about it, like if you're growing your company, there's lots of different people who come from lots of different perspectives and mindsets and they will just bring who they are. But if you have handles on it, you can actually guide what we do together and what we accomplish together, how we work together. That's the goal of having values and making them actively used as handles to guide the culture of the company. And as I think about values, you, know, you mentioned one of our values, draw the owl. That comes from an old internet meme, how to draw an owl. Step one, draw some circles. Step two, draw the rest of the owl. And like in the early days of Twilio, that just tickled us. We thought that was so funny, but like it kept coming up strangely in building the company. Like somebody would you know, ask a question, hey, does anyone know how to do this? And someone would just say, you know, draw the owl. Right. It basically means figure it out, ship it. Like there's no instruction book. It's ours to write. So ship it and figure it out and iterate. And so 
One thing I found is as you articulate the values of the company, what you're really doing is you're creating the unique parlance for this group of human beings. And every group of human beings has essentially a set of heroes, rituals, and symbols that they come to identify that group of people. And you see it in religions, you see it in countries, you see it in colleges. Like when you affiliate with a group of human beings, there are symbols, heroes, and rituals that help you to become a part of that group. And in many ways, that's what you're doing because you want to create this sense of pride and affiliation in the group of human beings that are going to work at your company. And so that's why I thought of it. And like, you know, nothing like you think about typical company values where it's like integrity, you know, that's fine word. I know what it means in the dictionary, but is it really one that you use in your everyday language? Is it really one that differentiates your group of human beings from the next one? Not really. And so it ends up becoming one of those empty words on the wall. And so the way I've thought about it is like, you know, we have a value, no shenanigans. First of all, I think it's more actionable. You have the sense of like, is what I'm doing shenanigans? Yeah, maybe it is, right? Like you can actually think about that. But number two is it's a unique word, you know, no shenanigans. That's why people say it a lot inside of Twilio. And because it's unique, because it's memorable, you kind of want your values to be almost hashtag worthy so that people remember them and can invoke them in making decisions because that's where the values really become a part of your company. When people invoke them regularly to make decisions as teams, that's where the values are doing their work. And the third thing I mentioned is the operating system, which is kind of a newer part of my thinking here. You need an operating system that speaks to the values and the culture really come about when you're doing the work of the company. And a lot of people think of culture and even values as some things that are like in the hallway, the conversations, the water cooler type stuff, or the, you know, do people hang out? And that's not really where the culture is made. The culture is made in getting the work of the company done. How do we make decisions together that everyone's not going to agree with? How do we hold each other accountable? You know, those are the real things where people are going to disagree. People are going to have different ways of solving problems and it won't be clear. How you resolve those tensions, that's really where the culture is made. And so I've started to think about you need to build a set of mechanisms and take those values and turn them into mechanisms or practices within the company that actually put them to work and help the company to resolve those tensions in a way that is the way you want to do it for your culture and your values. So for example, one of our values is ruthlessly prioritize. And we put that into practice with a system we call BPMs, and it's our planning tool. And it's you know so, sort of like OKRs, but it adds one very important thing to the OKR system that OKRs don't generally contain, prioritization. So you've got your list of goals, we call them priorities, and they're in order. And you force a conversation, what is more important than what? And when we inspect Teams BPM documents, or we write one for the whole company, there's a lot of discussion about why number one, number one, why is it better than number two or number three, right? And actually the ordering of those things is super important. So we took this value of ours, ruthlessly prioritized, and we turned it into a practice that is now used throughout the company to make those hard decisions and communicate them to other people. And so that's the third part, I think, of building a great company culture is actually taking your values and putting them into practice with these mechanisms that are used throughout the company. Yeah. And it obviously it changes over time how you think about the operating systems you need to build from early stage to mid stage to late stage to public. So Jeff, you make a really compelling case about the need to think like a developer. And then perhaps there's Brian Chesky at Airbnb who's sort of banging the table for saying you need to think like a designer. Are these things in conflict? They're not. There's a place, obviously, for both. I think, you know, developers, you don't need to think like a developer. There's a lot of different personalities in the world. But what you need to do is respect the things that developers can bring to the table and how they can help you be creative problem solvers in the business, as opposed to just feeling like they're code monkeys. And the same way I feel about designers, like designers have a role in so many processes. And, you know, I think of designers as people who tend to think outside in. They think about the 
interfaces that customers are going to use, not literally interfaces, but like designers tend to think about what the external appearances of a thing are. And they think less about maybe the internal machinations of things. And you need that. If all you do is think about how it's built, like which is what engineers often think about, and they don't think about how it's used, well, you'll often end up with suboptimal outcomes for your customers. But if you just think about the exterior appearances, how it's used, but you don't think about how it's built, well, that can take you on a path of a lot of pain with bad architectures or things that aren't scalable or things that don't actually work. And so you need both mindsets. You need the mindset of creative problem solving in terms of how can this technology be used to solve a big, hard customer problem? And you need the designer mindset of saying, if we build a thing to solve a customer problem, are we sure that the users are going to get the value out of it that we think they're going to get when we start it out? And so I think they're very complementary mindsets. And then obviously going back in history, so Leonardo da Vinci, he was both an amazing visually minded designer, but a remarkable engineer as well. So I think over time, we've kind of separated these disciplines. I think that if companies hinge their success on being able to hire the next Leonardo da Vinci, I think that is not a strategy probably for building a business. Yeah, I think you need to accommodate the fact that most people are not going to be great at both things. You need to build a team that has all the skills you need. I agree. I do think that many of the best developers have a designer mindset and vice versa. There's a just this curiosity and customer orientation and how they think about kind of solving problems in different ways is hugely valuable. The customer orientation part, absolutely. Like, And you need to build, in part of the book, I do talk about like, how do you get your small teams to be really customer focused? Organizations, if you think about it, as they grow up, they tend to build a lot of silos and a lot of walls that are designed to shield technical teams and developers from customers, you know, customer support or your sales team or your sales engineering team or product managers themselves are all designed in some ways to prevent your engineers from talking to customers. And I think that's a big disservice to your customers, to your engineers, and ultimately to the mission of the company company you're building. And really what you should seek to do is like the product managers in particular, they should be the ones who their job is seen as how do I facilitate the right engagement between the engineers, the people building the products, the people who want to solve those problems and customers. And obviously you can't, you know, put developers all the time on the front lines of every sales cycle or every customer support interaction. Clearly you need to have those functions. However, if you let those silos go up, you know, poke some holes in those silos and make it so developers do get opportunities to interact with the right customers and to take those learnings away. It really inhibits your ability to design and build things from that customer perspective. Yeah, we've talked a lot about software development as applies to business. And it clearly is true that digitization and software processes are kind of embedding everything that happens in business today. I'm curious, as you think about how this sort of this mindset and software development is applied to broader life and the decisions we make in terms of how we live, who we spend our time with, is there any insights that you have about applying this mindset to one's life? I think there's a creative problem solver mindset in a whole lot of people. And I think if you try to let that come out in your work and in your personal life and embrace it, you know, whether it's, you know, personal things that you're doing, hobbies, whatever. And I think that if you can actually figure out how to apply it to your work and your personal life, you know, I think that just leads to a fulfilling life because I think human beings, I think we're sort of wired to build. I think that's part of one of the defining attributes of humanity. And so giving yourself places where you can exercise that, I think is, I think for a lot of people, not everybody, there's no number one rule for every human being, except we need oxygen and calories. But I think there's a whole lot of people for whom they would benefit from being able to exercise that creative problem solving ability, but who you know, your job doesn't necessarily involve it on a day-to-day -day basis. And you know, think about how to incorporate that into life. That resonates with me. I think if you look back in the sort of industrial revolution, it was 
focus on mechanization of everything and really sort of humans doing robotic tasks. And thankfully, computers are doing a lot of those robotic tasks today. And now it kind of frees up the creative juices and ability to really apply kind of what is fundamental to us. So maybe we end on that. This is the opportunity to build as we go into 2021, you know, develop a mindset to use creativity to build something remarkable is truly a good for the world. It is time to build. The world has bigger problems than we've seen in a long time. And so it is a time to build. And that's a great way to end. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Looking forward to reading the book, Ask Your Developer. I'll be sending a few copies to our NFX portfolio companies for sure. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you, Pete. It's great to be here. And to everyone listening, I hope you have a fantastic 2021. You've been listening to the NFX podcast. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to the NFX podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more information on building iconic technology companies, visit nfx.com.